Very good morning to you. Three minutes after 8 o'clock. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. U.S. officials say a Malaysian airliner with 298 people aboard was brought down by a missile. Israeli ground forces invade Gaza and risk moves to the off position in markets. Global stocks went from bad to worse overnight. The Dow down 161 points and the DAX in Germany off more than 100. And also in the news, Google and IBM top sales estimates and Microsoft lays off some 18,000 workers. I think this is a uh, unfortunate for the affected employees, mm-hmm. but probably a good move for the, for the organization overall. So we'll look more at the 18,000 workers to be cut, many of them from Nokia after the merger. And that was, by the way, former Chrysler chief Bob Nardelli, who says he had to do it a few times as well. In our featured segments this morning, we'll be looking at the impact of geopolitics on markets. Our guests include Marcel Tillion from Capital Economics. We'll also be speaking with author Andrew Savitz, who will tell us about sustainability and human resources. In other words, how to keep you happy in your job. We'll be taking a look at Abenomics also and whether the past 18 months have seen some dividends for Japan. And Danny Hicks from AFP will be along to help us look at the wealthiest sports franchises in the world, the top 50 clubs and their fans. Markets are trending lower this morning, mostly red numbers on the screens, except for gold and government bonds. So stocks down, uh, gold up and bonds up. Gold trading now at $1,321.70. So that's up about $21 from around this time yesterday. The dollar yen, 101.20, not much change there. Uh, the euro is uh, changing hands at $1.35. So also not too much movement there. And the pound is worth 13 Hong Kong dollars and 24 cents. Well, U.S. officials say a Malaysian Airlines jet with 298 people on board has been shot down by a missile. The officials cited tracking information from a military spy satellite for the data. The satellite was unable to detect, though, where exactly the missile was fired. Uh, President Obama says the U.S. will do everything it can to help. Obviously, the world is watching reports of a downed passenger jet near the Russia-Ukraine border. And it looks like it may be a terrible tragedy. Uh, Right now, we're working to determine whether there were American citizens on board. That is our first priority. Uh, And I've directed my national security team to stay in close contact with the Ukrainian government. Uh, The United States will offer any assistance we can to help determine what happened and why. And as a country, our thoughts and prayers are with all the families of the passengers, wherever they call home. As we mentioned, oil prices uh, were among some of the safe haven assets that went up. Brent crude up about a dollar fifty to one hundred seven dollars and eighty nine cents. We'll cover a little bit more on this story in our news coming up later in this broadcast. Also, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has instructed the military to begin a ground offensive in Gaza. That's from an official statement from the uh, office of Mr. Netanyahu. Reuters witnesses and Gaza residents reported the heavy artillery and naval shelling and helicopter fire along the Gaza border. Again, more later in the program. Let's go back to the business news now and take a closer look at uh, Microsoft. Microsoft will lay off 18,000 people. It's the largest number of layoffs in the company's history. The restructuring amounts to about 14% of the company's workforce. Former Chrysler CEO Bob Nardelli says it's bad for workers, but it's probably good for the company. 
First of all, none of us are are happy when we hear about job reduction or people losing their job. Uh, second, I think uh, Microsoft uh, will certainly stand out in early notification. You know, they certainly will work uh, on attrition and, and severance packages. And third, I think, uh, you know, this shows really courageous leadership. He explains why he thinks this is courageous from Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. Investors have been concerned about making Microsoft a little leaner, maybe reducing some of the bureaucracy, increasing the speed of decisions. And so I, I think this is a, a unfortunate for the affected employees, mm-hmm. but probably a good move for the, for the organization overall. The cuts include 12,500 Nokia factory and professional workers. And at Microsoft, the cuts will be mostly in sales, marketing, and engineering. Mr. Nadella took over from Steve Ballmer back in February. He is retooling the company's structure. He's talked about making it a leaner, less bureaucratic uh, company. I think uh, this is a bold move. I think it's proof positive that uh, he intends to do what he has said. And again, very painful a gut-wrenching decision, having gone through this myself. It's never easy, but it is, in fact, necessary many times to maintain the financial strength and and, uh, agility, the ability for Microsoft to pivot going forward. That's former Chrysler CEO Bob Nardelli. The stock, Microsoft stock, was up about 3% in after-hours trading. Overall on Wall Street, stocks fell sharply, though. The Gaza and Ukraine news causing investors to run for the sidelines. They sold stocks, they bought bonds and other safe haven assets. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 161 points to 16,976. The S&P 500 down 23 at 1958, and the Nasdaq off 62. The Volatility index, the VIX, surged more than 32% to 14.54. There was some quick earnings news as well out overnight. Google sales beat estimates. Revenue was $12.7 billion. That was better than the $12.3 billion expected. And also, IBM beat sales estimates, but uh, they did fall. Those sales did fall 2% from a year earlier. We'll have more coverage of business and finance and also looking at the impact of geopolitics uh, on markets generally all throughout the program this morning. The program running from 8 to 9 o'clock as Backchat takes its summer break. I'd like to say good morning now to Marcel Tillion, Japan economist at Capital Economics. Marcel, good morning. Good morning. If I could first ask you about just overall the impact of geopolitical developments like this when you see um, a commercial jetliner shot down over Ukraine and also uh, ground forces from Israel uh, invading the Gaza Strip, um, what does that do to the investors' uh, psyche? Um, well, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, to be honest, I don't follow these developments very closely because I'm, I'm a Japan economist. So, um, would something like this would something like this impact uh, a lot here in Asia? I mean, you probably heard me mention that markets are all down uh, in Asia. We see Australia down eight points, uh, Seoul's down as well, two thirds of a percent. And, uh, you know, the, the arrows would be pointing down in, in most markets today, just because of the general uncertainty over this. Uh, do you expect um, something like that to to also feature in Japan? I don't think so. I mean the Japan is obviously a big uh, energy net importer, so if, if we had a big spike in oil prices as a result of all this, uh, then uh, we might see some impact here. But uh, so far, from what I see, the, the oil price is still 
within the range of it's been over the last couple of months, so, so I don't see a big impact from that on Japan. I guess the biggest thing in Japan is still trying to figure out uh, the restructuring that um, is part of Abenomics, the third, the so-called third arrow. Um, is it working, or is it in stall mode? Well, we just had the, uh, the uh, second leg, so to speak, uh, announced a few weeks ago. It had a lot of uh, different measures, but uh, I would say... Uh, on balance, they probably don't uh, change the picture uh, meaningfully. I think that the big drag on, on Japan's economy is still the declining workforce, and we've seen uh, insufficient measures to, to address this. You say insufficient workforce. Uh, is, that, um, is that one of the reasons why a lot of people think that more women should be brought into the force? Yes, I think that's, that's um, a key issue. Um, we've seen some... some um, Already last year, the government announced that it will provide more childcare, which is uh, obviously positive. But we haven't seen uh, so far how much uh, additional uh, facilities were actually created. And the, the other factor that they want to look at now is, is the tax system, because uh, currently second earners are are uh, basically encouraged by the tax system to work less. So if, these, uh, if the tax system is changed, we could see a bit more uh, a bit more women working. There are some positive elements, but I think we probably also need to see more immigration and also an increase in the fertility rate because there's only, even if the labor force participation rate of women rises, it can only rise so much, and it has risen already quite a bit in the last couple of years. Are the hurdles concentrated in companies? Is it companies that don't really want more women into the workforce? Or is it a cultural thing? Or is it that perhaps the women aren't trained, sufficiently trained at this juncture to fit into the workforce? Um, I don't think women are not sufficiently trained. I mean, the share of female university graduates is very high compared to other countries. I think it's it's both a bit of a corporate and a personal culture thing. I mean, it was just recently a survey where about 40% of Japanese said that uh, married women should stay at home and, and shouldn't work. So I think this is uh, the cultural side. And the other side is just in the companies, uh, women often don't get onto, onto career tracks, so their their career prospects are just not as good. So I guess uh, they, they do have uh, an incentive to withdraw from the labor market once they have children, simply because they, they cannot expect uh, too much career progress anyhow. And, of course, immigration is also also mentioned uh, quite a bit. We know that there are plenty of cultural impediments uh, there. Do you expect to see any any kind of strong movements in, in terms of uh, increasing the number of people who can immigrate to Japan? For now, I don't think so. I mean, we've had a couple of surveys uh, which show that most Japanese are clearly opposed to more immigration. And even the prime minister himself uh, made it pretty clear that he doesn't think immigration is, is a solution. I think it could still change in coming years because at the moment the population is still has only fallen a little. But once it really sinks into the, the collective uh, mind that, that the population is shrinking rapidly, I think then we might see some measures. But this is probably uh, something for the next five to ten years rather than for the next one or two years. Okay, let's look at some hard numbers. We see the dollar yen now, 101.20. Uh, where do you see that number out about six months? Well, we, we still think uh, that the, the yen will head towards uh, 110 against the dollar. 
Wow. By the end of the year. Wow. I, I know it, it sounds a bit aggressive at the moment, but um, we still think the BOJ will, will extend the QQE into next year. There's a bit of confusion at the moment uh, about the, the, the stance of the BOJ simply because they've said they will continue with QQE as long as necessary. So they'll probably have to make a judgment call at some point whether it's been necessary, whether the target has been achieved. I mean, so far, uh, inflation is still below their 2% target, so they probably will have to extend it into next year. But a lot of economists now think that they won't extend. So once this announcement happens, which we think will happen in late October, we still think that the, the yen will weaken and also the Nikkei will will rebound again. Okay, so we talked about yen numbers. What about Nikkei numbers? 15.3 now, 15,370. Where would we be at the end of the year? Our forecast is uh, 70,000 by the end of the year and uh, 18,500 by the, by the end of next year. So these are uh, another 10% upside from here. Yeah. I think the valuations are still uh, relatively good for, for Japanese uh, standards, uh, probably in line with uh, the U.S., I think that's one positive. And also, if we see a further weakening of the exchange rate, that will boost corporate profits somewhat and um, provide another support for the equity market. All right, Marcel, thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. That's Marcel T. Leon, Japan economist at Capital Economics. Yeah, after a really exciting guest like that, and particularly as it's a Friday, it makes me want to party a little bit and drink a little bit of, of red wine. Joking. Um, I kind of had a feeling that we would be in a bit of a downbeat mood this morning. I mean, there's a lot of pretty hard news uh, with us in the program. And, and Marcel is, is maybe not the most gripping guest, but um, he does fill us in on Japan from time to time. Uh, so I thought I'd you know, bring in something a little bit more uh, interesting. Uh, we look closely now at income inequality with a focus on the United States, but it might not be what uh, you expect, not quite what you expect, at least. And it's a return of the funny bits here on Money for Nothing. So a five-minute hard-hitting documentary now of sorts with John Oliver. Income inequality. A good way to figure out which side of it you're on is whether you're currently paying for HBO or stealing it. Uh, last, last December, some of you laughed a little too hard at that. L last December, the president made it clear that income inequality was going to be a big priority. The combined trends of increased inequality and decreasing mobility pose a fundamental threat to the American dream, our way of life, and what we stand for around the globe. I believe this is the defining challenge of our time. Yes, the defining challenge of our time. Well, well, one of the two defining challenges of our time, the other being Candy Crush Level 97. That is hard. <laughs> I've got a lollipop hammer and I still can't. Uh, the point is that the president said the word inequality 26 times in that speech, which everyone took to mean one thing. Income inequality is going to be the thrust, one of the major themes in 2016. Members of the Senate Democratic leadership team, that's Harry Reid on Dan, are clear, clearly going after this income inequality issue. For Democrats, it's an all-out assault on the issue of income inequality. An all-out assault. You better watch your ass, income inequality, because you're about to get violently ameliorated. <laughs> or you would have been if they hadn't almost immediately backed down. A new article says President Obama appears to be shifting strategy on tackling income inequality. The Washington Post reveals Democrats are split on the issue, leading President Obama to shift talk away from the subject. 
So basically, income inequality has become just another topic of conversation we prefer to avoid in America, like Japanese internment camps or that time that we gave Roberto Benigni an Academy Award. You know, <laughs> national tragedies, equally wrong. So John Oliver taking a look at inequality, and he focuses in this next little segment on inequality in such a big democracy. You would think... You would think in a democracy, policies that benefit very few people at the expense of very many would not be able to succeed, but they have. And I think the reason for that may lie somewhere in America's greatest quality, optimism. It's basically in how susceptible Americans are to this. We have never been a nation of haves and have-nots. We are a nation of haves and soon-to-haves, of people who have made it and people who will make it. Yes. I mean, I mean, no, no. Hold on. That sounds great. The problem is it makes no sense economically, mathematically, or even grammatically. And yet we believe him. We believe him. And there's a poll that I think explains why. A few months ago, Pew Research revealed that 65% of Americans believe the wealth gap is increasing, and 60% believe our system unfairly favours the wealthy. But, and here's the key, 60% also believe that most people who work hard enough can make it. Or in other words, yeah, I can clearly see this game is rigged, which is what's going to make it so sweet when I win this thing! <laughs> Woo! And John Oliver just loves the American spirit. That, that optimism is one of the things I love the most about this country. I love that you line up around the block for TV talent shows, for talents you objectively don't have. And, <laughs> and everyone feels bad when a person who is inevitably and revealingly British does this to you. It sounded like two three-year-olds who've got flu trying to sing. I didn't find it funny, and I like to laugh, and that wasn't funny to me. I don't know what that style was. It started off like bad food poisoning. Without any doubt, the worst act I've probably ever seen. You may want to be smart and start acting like an arrogant Your mashed potatoes are bland. <laughs> wow! Wow! Hold on! British person just told you your mashed potatoes were bland. That has got to hurt. The reason a British person has to do that is that we're raised in a rigid class system where we have all hope beaten out of us. And your optimism is overwhelmingly positive. John Oliver, formerly of The Daily Show, taking us into the world of inequality. And it's kind of a nice setup for my next guest coming up just now. Well, companies are under more pressure than ever, not only to be profitable, but also to be sustainable. Andrew Savitz, author of Talent, Transformation, and the Triple Bottom Line, joins us now on the program to tell us what businesses need to be doing to achieve sustainable growth. Andrew, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, great to have you with us. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, sorry, it's a tough act to follow, John Oliver, there, uh, talking about the inequality in America. In fact, it's something that we see all over the world. Maybe it'll come up in, in this interview. Um, your books mention the Triple Bottom Line a number of times. What is the triple bottom line? The triple bottom line is a new way that companies are being measured, managed, and valued. It stands for the idea that companies have to perform not only financially, Brian, but also uh, environmentally and socially. So companies, you be, companies are being looked at in terms of their environmental 
performance and what they do for society as well as what they do for their shareholders. In other words, if they don't perform on that level, they not only will lose investors, but they may lose talent. People won't want to work there unless it's a wholesome company with a good approach. That is increasingly true. As millennials come into the workforce, they're, the data shows that they care very deeply about what their organizations are doing about the environment. But don't you think that the financial crisis um, changed things a bit? Aren't people just happy to hold on to a job now, no matter what? It did a little bit. Uh, as a CEO once said to me, survival trumps sustainability. But uh, as things begin to come back, there's more uh, concern. And these environmental issues are growing uh, dramatically. So there's really no getting away from it, even during recessions. And do you think that the culture of millennials is different from, say, older generations? Because you mentioned them, that when they come into the workforce, they are definitely looking for more. Well, I think it's a matter of culture, but also uh, millennials are coming into a world which is threatened by climate change, which is threatened by hazardous waste, uh, where urbanization uh, threatens the social infrastructure. So uh, it's So in essence, it's actually tied to survivability as much as it is just a different mindset. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I have very young children. uh, They go to elementary school and every day is Earth Day. I mean, they're recycling everything. And so they've just grown up with a certain sense of uh, threat, but also I think of opportunity. Uh, The, you know, because technologies are coming on, there's more of an ability to deal with these issues. But it's certainly a bigger issue for millennials than any prior generation. You don't look young enough to have young children. Uh, sorry <laughs> well, you about know, that. You know what they say, Brian. Uh, you're only as old as the woman uh, yeah. you feel. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, we better not go there. This is no. a finance show. We're meant to be a little bit boring, uh, not sexy. Well, that's exciting. a Groucho yeah. Marx quote, so yeah. Good uh, one. I'll pass the uh, responsibility good, off. Good one. Um, Let's look at corporate social responsibility, uh, because I had a guest yesterday that said he doesn't think it's going to work. He likes philanthropy. He doesn't like CSR. Well, uh, it depends what he means by work. All the philanthropy in the world is not going to solve the problems we face. I mean, it's a great thing, philanthropy, but uh, unless businesses find ways to improve the environment and help society as part of their everyday, day-to-day business activities, uh, things aren't going to get better. Uh, so uh, philanthropy is great, but it won't work to solve our problems. In fact, though, a CSR does work. What my research has shown is that when companies get their employees involved in things like recycling or volunteering efforts in the community, not only does that do good for society and for their bottom line, but it also motivates those employees to feel more committed and loyal to their organizations. Are these incremental steps, in your view, that companies take, or do you think that this is uh, a real game changer and that it's a complete restructuring that's happening over this, say, decade? Well, yes and yes. I think that... Some slow, some fast. That's right. It is incremental in certain industries, uh, but look at how climate change is completely uh, changing the automobile industry, for example. It, it went very slowly with the development of hybrid cars, but now all companies in the industries are rushing for electric vehicles. The same for renewable energy. At a certain point, you reach a tipping point and things go from moving incrementally to uh, making step changes. Give me a hard example of... Uh, pretty much big move by a well-known firm? Well, for example, Walmart took many years uh, before it got onto the environmental program. But one day the light went on for its chief executive who realized that waste and reducing waste is a very good way to lower prices. And Walmart figured out that if they began to put uh, 
guidelines down for their suppliers. They could save billions of dollars if suppliers reduced the amount of packaging that they sent with their products. So Walmart was a very good example of a company that just made a pivot on this issue. And Apple? A little less so, I think. Uh, Apple has been slow to the game. Uh, one of their big issues, obviously, are the conditions in their manufacturing, uh, their contract manufacturing facilities. Uh, but they're starting to take more serious note. They recently hired Lisa Jackson to run their environmental program. She was the head of the Environmental Protection Agency in the Clinton administration. I'm sorry, the Obama administration. Okay, we've talked about this mainly from the company point of view. What about from the employee point of view? What can employees do to make them make their jobs more sustainable? Well, they can first look at their jobs and understand what the environmental and uh, social impacts of those jobs are. Almost every employee uh, does something that affects the environment, whether it's not turning out the lights at night or whether it's recycling what they use to or developing new products. Uh, you see the sustainability taking over in every corporate department, from research and development to purchasing and supply chain uh, to uh, marketing. So uh, it's first understanding um, what they can do in their jobs. And this is happening because employees want to do something. They want to bring their values to work. If they're recycling at home or if they're turning out the lights at home and they don't have the opportunity to do that at work, they're disappointed. Tell me how technology is making this a lot easier. Oh, in many ways. Um, social I like the idea of a smart home. I can't wait until my home is as smart as my phone. It senses when I get there and it turns on the air con and that sort of thing. Oops, I left, I left the oven on. And uh, an hour later, it shuts itself down because it detects that there's no movement in the house. There's no re reason for the oven to be on. Well, I'm 15,000 miles away from home, and if I was a little smarter, I could figure out ways to adjust my thermostat from Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think these, are, these things are possible now, but you just need um, big dollars. Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, employees bring their cell phones to work, um, and they can communicate with each other now in ways they never had before. And so you see them getting organized themselves in things like green teams. You know, these are volunteers within companies that decide to get together to do fairly amazing things. Uh, they save the company's money and uh, they improve their company's reputation and they feel better about being at the company. Yeah. All right. Listen, why don't you hang around for a few minutes if you're not in a rush? If you have to go, you have to go. But we've got to do the news now at the bottom of the hour. And it's kind of fun talking to you. So if you can stay, please do. And uh, we'll pick it up in the in the second half of the program. Also coming up a bit later, Danny Hicks, the editor of Sports Direct at AFP, will be looking at the sports team's rich list and finding out who's really making it in the world of sport. <laughs> Markets are down. The Nikkei off 208 points uh, in the early trade at 15,162. You know, the shooting down of a Malaysian airliner in the Ukraine, knocking most equity markets down across Asia. The strong wind signal number three is in force. Wind speeds of 41 to 62 kilometers per hour. We'll keep an eye on that storm for you. Some rain and some winds today expected in Hong Kong. Eight thirty-one. The news with Samantha Butler. 
The Ukrainian authorities say a passenger plane has been shot down in the east of the country in an area where pro-Russian rebels have been fighting government forces. They say all on board the Malaysian Airlines flight were killed. Malaysia Airlines says there were 298 passengers and crew on board, including three infants, and the flight route taken by the airliner had been declared safe by the International Civil Aviation Organization. The BBC's James Robbins reports. Those who were first on the scene found burning wreckage and scores of bodies. Photos appeared on the internet showing the distinctive blue and red livery of Malaysia Airlines on parts of the fuselage. Malaysia Airlines confirmed that it had lost contact with its Boeing 777 as it was flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur along an established and frequently used air corridor which runs through both Ukrainian and Russian airspace. Suggestions it could have been shot down by a missile in this conflict zone quickly followed. At least one separatist rebel group in eastern Ukraine denied that it was responsible or had access to missiles with the necessary range. In Washington, the U.S. Vice President Joe Biden said it seemed the plane had been shot down. A Malaysian aircraft, apparently, I say apparently because I don't have all the detail yet, I want to be sure of what I say, apparently had been shot down. Shot down, not an accident. Blown out of the sky. Israel has begun a ground operation with aerial and naval support against Palestinian militants in Gaza. The Israelis say they want to destroy tunnels from Gaza into Israel. A Hamas spokesman called Israel's ground operation foolish and said it would have dreadful consequences. The impact of the ground offensive is already being felt in Gaza from where the BBC's Yolan Nell reports. Already there's been shelling along the coast and border areas in the north, east and south have been hit repeatedly with Israeli airstrikes and artillery fire. Witnesses have told the BBC that about 10 tanks have crossed into northwestern Gaza. There's said to have been an exchange of fire in the northern Beit Hanun area where houses are on fire. Many injuries have been reported there. Mainland authorities will try in public a foreign couple linked to drug maker GlaxoSmithKline on charges of illegally obtaining private information after the United States and Britain raised concerns about access to the trial. Prosecutors announced charges against British investigator Peter Humphrey and his American wife Yu Ying Zheng on Monday. The couple were detained last year following work they did for the British pharmaceutical firm. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Very good morning to you. 8.33 here on Money for Nothing, the one-hour summer version of the program where we focus on business and finance and also news. Coming up in this half hour, we will speak some more with Andrew Savitz, author of Talent Transformation and the Triple Bottom Line. We'll also be speaking with Danny Hicks a bit later, looking at the top 50 uh, sports clubs in the world in terms of how successful and how rich they are. And Angelina Drapar, in turn, will be introducing a new segment here on Money for Nothing nothing today a couple of minutes a tech update on money for nothing but first we return to the top news stories of the day the ukrainian authorities say that a malaysian airline 777 has been shot down in the east of the country in an area where pro-russian rebels have been fighting government forces all 298 people on board the flight from amsterdam to kuala lumpur were killed a spokesman at Schiphol airport in uh, holland gave a breakdown of the nationalities of the casualties 154 Dutch passengers were on board the aircraft. 
27 Australian passengers, 23 Malaysian, 11 Indonesian, 6 from the UK, 4 from Germany, 4 from Belgium, 3 from the Philippines, and 1 Canadian. Now, the rest, we have not yet identified the nationality. Freelance journalist Harriet Salem has been seen or has been at the scene of the crash in the eastern part of Ukraine. In terms of villagers' accounts, they heard the plane coming overhead. People reported hearing two to three large bangs and then hearing further explosions as as the plane began to spiral downwards out of the sky and crash. Most people took shelter at this point because they actually feared it was a bombing. This is a conflict zone and there have been bombings in the areas. So people were obviously very frightened, very distressed. The plane fell just a few metres away from some villagers' houses. The main crash site is total devastation. The cornfield has been burnt out. There are large chunks of charcoal metal strewn and the fires are still blazing despite the best efforts of the uh, fire fire service that arrived on the scene uh, other parts of the plane are being flung maybe at least up to half a kilometer away possibly further it's, it's a very difficult scene uh, there are sadly the remains of people there there are a couple of skeletons that can be seen or the remains parts of skeletons at the main crash site and further afield there are bodies and, uh, and parts of bodies so it's uh, it's very tough Malaysian Airlines says the flight route taken by the flight had been declared safe by the International Civil Aviation Organization. Ukrainian air traffic control says it lost radar contact with the aircraft some 50 kilometers from the Russia-Ukraine border. Malaysia's Prime Minister Najib Razak has been speaking to his counterpart in Kiev, President Poroshenko, and other world leaders. The Ukrainian president confirmed that his government will negotiate with rebels in the east of the country in order to establish a humanitarian corridor to the crash site. Just now, I received a call from President Obama. He and I both agreed that the investigation must not be hindered in any way. An international team must have full access to the crash site and no one should interfere with the area or move any debris, including the black box. Meantime, the U.S. Vice President Joe Biden said the destruction of the plane was no accident. The BBC's Rajini Vaidyanathan has more from Washington. I should caution that watching Joe Biden's comments, he does say that he hasn't seen all the details, but he does believe, apparently, apparently, he says twice, that uh, it was not shot down in an accident and that it was blown out of the sky. So I get a sense that uh, uh, Vice President Biden has a strong hunch, but he hasn't seen uh, all the information yet for that to be an authoritative uh, confirmation that that's what's happened. But we are also hearing from U.S. officials who have told uh, some U.S. media outlets that they believe that a surface-to-air missile brought down the Malaysian Airlines plane. And the the same official says that U.S. intelligence and analysis has determined that it was a single surface-to-air missile that struck the aircraft at cruising altitude. But they go on to say it's unclear 
whether the missile was fired from inside Ukrainian territory or Russian territory, and indeed who fired it. So still plenty of questions, even though the sense from Washington is that that plane was shot down. A spokesman for the pro-Russian separatists in Donetsk, Sergei Kavratsa, told Russian television the plane was shot down by the Ukrainian military. Simply put, the air defense which the Donetsk regional militia has is not capable of bringing down an aircraft at a height of 10,000 meters and higher, that's at which the civil aviation flies. The portable air defense systems which we do have, they work at a maximum of three to 4,000 meters. Therefore, it's possible to say virtually before the start of the investigation that the Ukrainian armed forces destroyed this plane. However, Andrei Lysenko, spokesman for Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, said that separatists did have access to missiles capable of shooting down an airliner. We have information that certain systems capable of hitting aircraft at high altitudes have passed into Ukrainian territory. There was a bulk missile system among them. There's even a video showing a column of such equipment passing through Luhansk. Mike Weeks asked our Europe correspondent Gavin Gray if it's now certain that an airliner or that the airliner was brought down by a missile. Well, that's certainly what it would appear. Um, Obviously, there are mechanical errors, pilot errors, all sorts of things to be factored into this, which is why getting to the debris, to the the wreckage scene is so important. Incidentally, it's also being reported by uh, an unverifiable source that uh, rebels are refusing to let uh, the emergency services and uh, uh, those that need to get to the site near. They are sort of putting a ring fence around it, if you like. So all sorts of rumors, counter rumors are coming out. Um, But uh, certainly the West is, is most definitely pointing the uh, fingers most firmly in the direction of the separatists and the nature of the plane flying at that altitude if it were brought down by a surface-to-air missile that needs to be some pretty complicated technical kit Uh, and as a result Mike uh, you know it's not the sort of thing that rebels would have unless they were being armed by a bigger backed group and that's why so many are pointing the finger at Russia indeed some are suggesting that the plane came down so close to the border with Russia that it could have been fired from Russia itself. Again, all unconfirmed reports, Vladimir Putin angrily dismissing claims that uh, his country had anything to do with it, or indeed that it was the weapons that uh, were being supplied by Russia might have had anything to do with it. Uh, and uh, uh, President but, uh, uh, Obama really going, going at it quite uh, diplomatically so far, Mike, uh, not too much finger-pointing from him, but I suspect as time goes on and they manage to get to this debris site, I think we'll get the first clearer indications of what brought that plane down. But if, as you say, the rebels are going to be uncooperative, they are seen as uh, being backed by Moscow, this is going to change the whole nature of the debate surrounding Ukraine and Russia's role in, in, in this. I think it's a game-changer. I mean, if it was not mechanical or pilot error, if it turns out to have been shot down, I think this completely changes the whole debate surrounding the Ukrainian crisis. There's been growing concern among Western governments, really, that Russia is stepping up its military support for separatists in eastern Ukraine. NATO spokesmen have insisted that they believe more and more heavy military equipment was moved from Russian stockpiles uh, near the border, across the border, to separatists. Uh, And in response, the U.S., of course, strengthened its economic sanctions, which, again, Moscow complained about. So there's no doubt that uh, I think if if this does prove to be uh, a plane that's been shot down by Russian-supplied 
uh, arms or Russian-supplied machinery, yeah, I think the uh, Ukrainian crisis has taken on a whole new faction. Incidentally, I'm also now getting news that the Ukrainian rebels have agreed to a short ceasefire, uh, uh, and uh, it looks like the, the uh, Russian-backed rebels also looking for a ceasefire in order now to let the various investigators onto the site. But who those investigators will be can't even be agreed at the moment. And that's Gavin Gray, our European correspondent there, speaking early this morning in Hong Kong today with our Mike Weeks. Wanted to mention about the super typhoon. That uh, storm has been upgraded to a super typhoon, and uh, that means that it has wind speeds of, of more than 62 kilometers per hour. The typhoon is estimated to be about 410 kilometers south-southwest of us. It is heading over towards the Guangdong coast and looks like it will pass over the northern part of Hainan Island. And the closest point that it would be to Hong Kong would be this morning, our time. We are expecting still heavy rains and strong winds for the next couple of days, but the winds should abate a little in the next couple of days. Now let's take a look at um, where we are now in markets as we get back to Money for Nothing this morning. The Nikkei down 224 points, 1.5% at 15,145. The geopolitics weighing in on markets. Australia is down as well, half a percent, and so is Seoul. It cost me off about 10 points at 2010, and that's a drop of also about half of 1%. One of our guests this morning in the studio is Andrew Savitz, author of Talent Transformation and the Triple Bottom Line. We've been talking about the sustainability of a workforce. And Andrew, thanks for staying with us, and uh, welcome uh, back to the program. One of the things we talked about was uh, sustainability in the workforce are some examples that people can work at home um, more now than in the past. Well, yes, uh you know, that has some sustainable uh, impacts in several ways. One, uh, it helps companies let their employees get a good work-life balance. It reduces commuting. Therefore, it's good for the environment. Uh, and, uh, you know, companies have actually taken that a step further. They've reduced the amount of travel that their employees do by using technology, and that's been good for everybody. It cuts their costs, cuts their clients' costs, and it saves on the environment. Do you see these developments in developing countries as well as the developed countries? Oh, yes. Uh, less so on the environmental side, but more so on the social side. So, for example, microfinance is a brand new uh, business where uh, – uh, banks make very small loans, five, ten, twenty-five dollar loans, uh, to entrepreneurs in developing countries who then use them to make small investments that lead to economic development. It's not that new. I mean, Mohammed Yunus won a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, but do you see it uh, being adopted by a lot of countries? Uh, is it is it something now is pretty much a matter of course? Oh yes, it's been estimated that uh, microfinance has had as large an impact on economic development as foreign aid. Hmm. So it it is being adopted, uh, you know, all over the world, I think. And banks are making money on it. It's a perfect example of what I call a sweet spot. It's good for business and, in this case, great for society. And what's the point of coming out here uh, to talk to us on the radio about this? I mean, you're trying to sell the book, I guess. But uh, is this – are you moving all throughout uh, Asia or is it just a trip to Hong Kong? This time it's just a trip to Hong Kong. But I have traveled all over the world speaking to businesses uh, – universities, uh, communities about how uh, organizations can work together for the betterment of themselves and for the betterment of society. And this is not mumbo jumbo. This is real. Uh, this is real. I mean, uh, it's real in terms of uh, companies are embracing it. Yes, they are, in part because uh, 
there's pressure on them to do so, in part because as resources diminish, as we live in a carbon-constrained world, it, it uh, interestingly creates more economic incentives for companies to do the right thing. You know, when resources are scarce, they become expensive. And as they become expensive, companies will look look for ways to avoid those expenses. Can you give us any example of the recalcitrance of a company, uh, perhaps to adopt this or accept it, uh, suffering some adverse effects? Well, you'll recall the British Petroleum used to be considered Uh beyond petroleum. Well, when the uh, Deepwater Horizon exploded in 2010 in the Gulf of Mexico, killing 11 people, uh, all the independent reports about BP showed that the culture of the company uh, was not right when it came to workforce safety. The culture of the company was increase productivity and beat Exxon. And uh, workers felt that safety and environment were not priorities within the company. And the consequences were catastrophic. That explosion, that accident is going to cost BP over $50 billion. It almost sunk the company. They lost some tremendous uh, economic opportunities in the wake of it. Their stock price fell from a high of 68 before the accident to a low of 21 after the accident. So they lost billions in market cap, all because they were not taking worker health and safety and environmental issues seriously, despite what they were saying. Yeah. All right, Andrew, it's quite interesting stuff. Thanks very much for enlightening our audience here in Hong Kong. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me. Andrew Savitz, author of Talent Transformation and the Triple Bottom Line, live on Money for Nothing. Good morning to you. 12 minutes now before 9 o'clock. And this is the hour-long version of Money for Nothing, the summer version. And we have a new feature uh, to bring to you this morning on Money for Nothing, which we'll do every day, at least during the course of Angelina Draper's internship here at Hong Kong. She probably doesn't like me referring to her as an intern, but who knows? Maybe we'll be paying her soon. Angelina, good morning to you. Good morning. And thanks very much for coming in. So the tech, tech update, we talked a little bit about Microsoft, and it's kind of a nice um, flow out from Andrew in the discussion we had there. Tell us a little bit what's happening in tech. So as you um, started, we'll recap. Microsoft announced plans to cut up to 18,000 jobs over the next year. Most of the jobs will come from the areas of overlap with Nokia's handset business that Microsoft acquired in April. In a memo to employees, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella explained that the company is seeking to streamline company operations. Bob Nardelli, former Chrysler CEO, says Mr. Nadella must focus on the human side of the layoffs. Certainly he has to over-communicate the logic on this. He has to treat each individual with dignity and respect as he has to make these gut-wrenching decisions. And then he has to show how the benefit of this will, will improve the overall financial sustainability and the, the uh you know, ability to move forward with new innovation, new ideas, and uh, really strengthen the financial uh, position of Microsoft overall. Facebook is increasing its role as an e-commerce player. It began testing a new buy button in the United States that allows users to purchase products directly from ads on the social media network. Facebook says the service will be available on mobile and desktop devices.
The search engine Bing joins Google in allowing Europeans the right to be forgotten on the Internet. The move comes after a landmark ruling in May that allows people to request the removal of certain web pages from search engine results. Google says they have received 77,000 requests so far. And the highly anticipated IPO date for Alibaba is now expected to, to be in September, sometime after Labor Day. There was speculation it might happen in the first week of August, but the company is reportedly saying it simply needs more time to prepare what many are expecting will be the biggest IPO in U.S. history. Chinese security company Qihou360 Security Technology announced the first documented hack of a Tesla Model S car. The feat won the hackers a $10,000 prize and was part of a security confidence conference. Kihu did not provide details of how the hackers managed to gain remote control of the car's door locks, headlights, wipers, sunroof and horn, but they did offer to work with Tesla to fix the vulnerability. And the amazing thing about that story was Tesla actually embraced it and said, okay, hackers, bring it on, but let us know what it is and we'll fix it. Well, actually, Facebook is also known to do that. Facebook has um, in the past hired hackers and they do actually have these... Hackathons. They have hackathons, exactly. And because the, the theory is simply, if you can break into our system, Systems. We want to know about it before the bad guys do. Yeah. All right, Angelina, thanks very much for our tech update here on Money for Nothing. Yeah, just a little meat on the bone there for you here in Money for Nothing. Uh, more stimulating business talk and sports talk as well. Well, Forbes has just released its annual sports teams rich list. To give you a sense of the figures involved, the top three teams, the richest alone, are valued at a combined $9 billion. So which teams have come up as the biggest winners this year? Tell us more. We're joined by Danny Hicks, editor of Sports Direct at AFP. Good morning, Good morning Danny. Good yeah. morning. Right. So everybody knows the names of the New York Yankees and mm. Manchester United, but they're not on top. No, and um, but a little bit of a surprise, really, when you, you consider that, uh, well, it seems a long time ago now that Spain went out of the World Cup uh, quite early on, but uh, it's Spanish teams that dominate, and Real Madrid are top of the pile, European champions, of course, this year. They are valued at $3.44 billion, and uh, Barcelona not far, far behind on $3.2 billion. And what leads to this largesse? What, what actually causes them to get so wealthy? Well, it seems to be that there's a huge appetite in, uh, in uh, stock markets for uh, uh, sort of investing in, in sports as, as trophy brands, really. And, uh, and they're going down big with uh, advertisers. And, of course, there's huge TV deals, which we've talked about many, many times on this program. It's certainly in, in football, soccer, as you would call it, uh, as opposed to American football. Um, and these TV deals and, and the sponsorship, we've just seen, you know, Ad Adidas has just... Uh, signed the biggest uh, shirt sponsorship deal in history with Manchester United. $1.3 billion and possibly more over 10 years, which is twice as much as their deal with uh, with Real Madrid. Well, um, astonishing was, numbers. I, I, Adidas was really a big winner in the World Cup. Uh, Why, exactly. You know, with the balls being kicked and with sponsoring both teams and some of the key players. Yeah, uh, and a, a huge amount of the German team. Obviously, a German company. And uh, what could be better for a German company than Germany winning the World Cup? Really on the crest of a wave there, and Bayern Munich, interestingly, who won the European uh, the European Cup two years ago, of course, the Champions League, um, they've uh, popped into the top ten for the first time on this list as well at number seven. So, uh, uh, you know, German, Spanish, and uh, and uh, English football dominating. Uh, 
as far as the non-US sports teams go, but uh, this list is dominated by American sports, as you might expect. Uh, sure, it, it would be just because of the size of the U.S. economy. But is this kind of telling in that um, most of the American sports are not completely, but essentially domestic yeah. sports, and football is really enjoyed the world over. It's global, as we've just seen with the World Cup just finished. I mean, I've already got withdrawal symptoms. It's only been over a few days. I can't wait for the next one, but it's four you, years away. You keep I mean, waking the, the, up at 3 a.m. Even, even in the United States, Brian, even you, who's uh, not a football man, you know, you were captivated by the Team USA doing so well and coming so close. You know, how close did they come against Germany who eventually won the whole thing? Um, you know, that biggest TV audience ever for, for World Cup games in the United States. So, yeah, um, the American teams obviously they've got a huge economy in America and, and the huge sort of uh, global, uh, the huge corporate forces behind them. But on a global scale, nothing can compete with football in terms of its reach and also its, its attractiveness to, to the big brands. Okay, since this is the top 50 uh, and there would be a lot of American teams mm. in there, uh, uh, does the NFL dominate over, say, baseball and basketball? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's, let's just put this in. 40 of the top 50 in this list, in the Forbes Rich list, are American uh, franchises, shall we say. Um, or 41, actually, just looking at my list here. 30 of them are NFL teams, wow. um, which is incredible. Six Major League Baseball teams, four NBA teams, which surprised me there's only four NBA teams because I think of all the American sports, the NBA has probably got the potential to be the one has the global reach. Basketball is huge in this part of the world, as we know. Yeah. Um, and also in, in Europe. Um, you know, there's a lot yeah. of great basketball played in Europe. Well, Real Madrid and Barcelona have uh, some of the best basketball teams in their kind of sports franchise in Europe as well, who is dominate right? the European competition. Mm. Yeah. If you look at the... There is a kind of European championship, a Champions League of basketball in Europe. And, uh, you know, teams are like Real Madrid and Barcelona are always up there and uh, the German... Germany has a lot of great teams as well. And we and obviously we see those players progressing onto the NBA. A lot of Spanish players, a lot of German players. Dirk Nowitzki's just signed a huge deal for the for the Dallas Mavericks, uh, a German player and uh, and 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 uh, uh, Paul Gasol and, and people like that from Spain uh, in the NBA. So, yeah, uh, the global reach of the NBA. I, I would expect over the next few years that the, the NBA teams will come more and more into this list. And, of course, we've got the uh, something that's going to turn this list on its head as well is the potential sale of the Los Angeles Clippers. I was just going to bring that $2 up, billion. Yeah, for $2 billion. That raises the value of all those other teams. Well, the Forbes valued the Clippers at something like $500 million uh, not oh. very long ago. And now for them to be... Uh, being sold to coming back to what we were talking about before Microsoft, the former Microsoft guy Steve Ballmer for for two billion. Obviously, it's all it's all a bit held up in the courts at the moment with the Sterling case. But um, you know that just raises the bar again in terms of we've seen you know, the, the, these 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 valuations seem to keep going off the scale, and you and you wonder if it's a bubble that's going to burst. But it seems no sign of it at the moment. New TV deals are going to kick in in America and things like NBA soon, uh, and uh, it's just going to well sports sales. take off and off. And it's off. really one of the reasons, um, not the essence of the reason, but one of the reasons that uh, Rupert Murdoch is moving on on Time Warner is that um, mm. there's a big sports element there uh, down in the South. Okay, Danny, we got to go. Unfortunately, out of time, but thanks very much. Much for joining us here on Money Pleasure, for Nothing. as always. Danny Hicks, uh, sports direct editor at AFP. 
Well, the three organizers of Occupy Central are trying to arrange a meeting with the three-member government task force on constitutional development led by Carrie Lam, the chief secretary. It was revealed by one of the organizers, the University of Hong Kong law professor, Benny Tai, who said that now is the time for dialogue. RTHK's Richard Pine reports. Professor Benny Tai said the government was open to meeting to discuss their views on the task force's report, which was released on Tuesday along with the chief executive's report to the National People's Congress Standing Committee. He said he hoped the voices of Hong Kong people would be heard. We have the uh, civil referendum and also we have the July the 1st rally. I think the very strong demand of Hong Kong people has been expressed and that has also been mentioned, though may not be very accurate and complete in the CE report. So I still trust that the government, uh, both the SL government and the central government, must consider the views of Hong Kong people. Professor Tai was speaking after a meeting with the Democratic Party's executive committee on the two government reports. He said the Occupy Central movement will continue to meet with other groups and partners to discuss how the campaign should progress. Democratic Party Chairwoman Emily Lau said her party was very, very worried that the National People's Congress Standing Committee would soon rule out all forms of democratic elections that would meet international standards. She said this would be a signal for action, but reiterated that occupying Central was a last resort. We don't want to occupy Central. We want to have universal suffrage. And we agree with Professor Tai that this is time for dialogue. And we hope that he uh, will have dialogue with the administration and with Beijing and to persuade them that what Hong Kong people want is very reasonable and hope that they will listen. Ms Lau added that LegCo's pan-democratic lawmakers were also hoping to meet with the chief secretary next week. Richard Pine reporting. Well, this is Money for Nothing. We'll just wrap it up with the weather and some traffic. Uh, traffic queues on Lung Chung Road, Kwai Chung bound, are ending at Lung Chung Road Lookout. Uh, the traffic is congested there. And due to an accident, all lanes of Ching Chung Roads, the slip road Kwai Chung Road uh, bound, rather, near Lai Chi Kok Park, are closed to traffic. The typhoon number three signal is in force, and we are